Welcome to Fortress on a Hill. I'm Henry. I'm Danny. I'm Kagan. We're three leftist veterans that aim to expose the reality of the U.S. military's multiple wars abroad and to illuminate the damage military service does to Americans. American presidents throughout U.S. history have used American military and diplomatic power to force regime change of democratically elected governments around the world. Most veterans come from families vested in prior service, and American generals choose their own, ensuring diversity of thought never interferes with American warmongering. How can we stand by and do nothing while our military kills and destroys lives the world over, while telling Americans that all this death and destruction protects them from terrorists when nothing could be more false? Fortress on a Hill aims to change that. So welcome everyone to Fortress on a Hill. We are coming to you live today for a a very special episode to discuss and mark the 50th anniversary of the Winter Soldier hearings. We have a really uh, great lineup of guests. They're going to discuss this with us. Uh, those include uh, Larry Wilkerson, Greg Dadis, uh, the great Andrew Vasevich, Chris Lombardi, uh, Vince Emanuele, and uh, Giovanni Reyes. Um, alongside our, our usual crew of, of, of myself, Danny and Kagan. Um, so for people that don't, don't know the winter soldier, uh, investigation panels summit, however you want to call it was a, a three day event in Detroit in February of 1971, which brought combat veterans who had fought in Vietnam to testify to their personal experiences with atrocities they or their comrades committed both against uh, Vietnamese enemy combatants and the civilian citizens of, of Vietnam uh, writ large. Um, the hearings were preceded by the revelations of the My Lai Massacre, uh, which unlike Winter Soldier, uh, received major media attention and did force U.S. officials to, to a certain extent, defend their policies in Vietnam, which caused leaders like General Westmoreland, the senior U.S. commander in Vietnam at the time, to refer to the My Life participants as, quote-unquote, a few bad apples, a comment that many veterans of Vietnam found beyond disingenuous and alongside other dismissals by those in power compelled them uh, to speak out. It was organized by the Vietnam veterans against, against the war uh, with many of the veterans um, in the film who participated having never been, uh, excuse me, never spoken of their experiences publicly prior to their testimony, nor were there many of them uh, act, anti-war activists before the inquiry be began. It was uh, filmed by a documentary crew and then uh, turned into a film, which is uh, available on YouTube for anybody who, who wants to watch it. I will uh, share the link here in just a minute in the chat. Um, what they share is is very violent and graphic, so do do be uh, forewarned about that. And of course, we're going to discuss some of those aspects uh, this evening. Um, but if you do have time to to truly understand what we're discussing today, I would suggest watching at the very least the um, first thirty minutes. Uh, Danny, what what do you got for us today? Well, uh, first of all. You know, this was uh, a late stage thing that we came up with doing the show. And uh, and it was Henry's kind of brainchild. He, he had realized that this commemoration was coming up. And uh, I'm really glad that we're taking the time to talk about it. I, I think tonight on the live stream, 
that panelist lineup, that sequence of six people, intergenerational, different experiences, you know, um, different eras, uh, and, and coming at it from different angles is really the value. Uh, one of the things we're going to do, especially up front, is we're going to bring on, you know, historians, starting with Greg Dadis and a little later on, Chris Lombardi, who are going to give, just really build on that context and backstory, because so often these events, uh, they're just kind of like taken over by different groups and they're memorialized for for certain reasons and they're taken out of their actual historical context. And so we're going to be able to really frame that with the Vietnam War historian and then also sort of the GI descent, military descent historian, Chris Lombardi. Uh, you know, I think one of the things that we're going to highlight throughout this process is that, you know, in 2008, the Iraq veterans against the war uh, did something pretty similar, right? The sort of Iraq, Afghanistan winter soldier hearings. And one of the things that's interesting about that, if, you know, as you studied, I wasn't involved in any of that. I, you know, I was still carrying water for the empire, you know, dutifully. But what's important about it, I think, is that while they were unique events with unique individuals and their own kind of contingency and agency, a lot of the same struggles pushback, uh, but also emphasis and power uh, was shared across them. And so there, you know, it's worth a contrast and a comparison uh, to analyze the legacy and relevance of, you know, Winter Soldier 1971 and then also 2008 uh, in this time of transition, post 9-11, to War President 4.0 of what used to be called the War on Terror. Uh, and really the only wars in American history that can be looked at that way, you know, besides wars on the Native Americans, are Vietnam and the Philippines. And depending on how you count, you know, Vietnam, if you look at when the first advisors go in, you know, you're, you're talking about five war presidents. So there are some similarities there, despite them being different wars. Uh, when I talk about the backlash, you know, we're gonna get into this, especially as we transition to the post 9-11 veterans. You know, we're looking at uh, active government and media sabotage, you know, to some extent in 71, um, which I'm sure we'll get to. That's the Nixon administration. That's, that's also just media blackouts. Uh, not really being covered. And there were some similar stories about the New York Times kind of like overtly not covering the 2008 hearings. And so I'm sure we'll hear more of that later. Um, you know, there was also a use of veterans as political pawns. This idea that if there's an element of, of veterans that are against the war, the, you know, the Nixon administration is starting to think and other elements, well, we should form our own groups that are pro-war and have these counter rallies. And then everyone's using different veterans for their own political purpose. Uh, that happens in Vietnam and it may ring true today to a lot of people. Uh, there are some missing components today. Um, I don't think we've seen the same level of, say, celebrity support that there was in 1971. And we can argue whether that's positive or negative, what it really means. Uh, and then I think that the, the, this idea of, you know, what did the politicians do? And, and I think that there is some difference. And, and I'm hoping that, uh, you know, Colonel Greg Dattis will probably hit on this as well as Chris Lombardi, maybe even some of our Vietnam vets. But, you know, you had folks like Senator Mark Hatfield who read this into the record. Uh, he's this kind of old fashioned Republican dying breed, although I think this one we should just say dead breed of, you know, World War II veteran who then breaks with his party a whole lot, especially on foreign policy, you know, opposes the Vietnam War uh, somewhat, you know, in favor of the nuclear freeze movement. And then even one of the only two Republicans to oppose the Gulf War. And then, of course, there's the Fulbright hearings that follow. Um, I think we saw probably a little bit less than that in terms of political support. Um, in 2008, although there were, of course, the Progressive Caucus holding some hearings. So I think that the key here is to uh, look at some of the relevance and, uh, you know, kind of let our speakers do the talking because we've got a great panel. And I'm really excited about it on short notice. Uh, Kagan. Well, I was just going to 
reiterate a lot of what you said, honestly, um, just paying attention to, you know, what what is the purpose of veterans when they speak? You know, how is it narrated? How is the narrative portrayed? What does the, the I mean, it, it was funny that it, it was ridiculous that this was basically not covered outside of Detroit. Like nobody wanted it to be a big thing. Everybody wanted to just like, you know, make it as hush hush as possible. And I found that to be, you know, not, uh, not um, uncommon, but it's just, again, just more, more evidence that our government just cannot take any criticism, ever wants to be, have its uh, legitimacy challenged. And that's exactly what issues like this does. And it just shows that, you know, what happens when we go into a, a, a country without any real objective of trying to help people, just trying to create more war. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, with that, I think that um, for once we're going to do less talking than usual. And, you know, I'm going to briefly introduce, we're, we're each going to kind of take the panelists in sequence. Um, first up is uh, Greg Dattis. And, you know, for those who don't know his work uh, and his career, he's a 1989 West Point graduate, uh, was, a, you know, he's a professor of history, retired U.S. Army full colonel. Uh, he was in Desert Storm as well as Iraqi Freedom. Uh, now he is a professor of military history at San Diego State. Before that, he was at Chapman University. His specialization really is history of the Vietnam Wars and the uh, Cold War era. Prolific author, five books, most recently Pulp Vietnam, which is totally worth checking out. And his columns have been all over the place, right? But in some of the mainstream places, you know, New York Times, Washington Post, LA Times. Uh, Greg was also my boss uh, as the American History Division Chief uh, on the West Point faculty in the History Department, uh, who I'm happy to say developed into uh, a personal friend against his better judgment. Uh, and he's now also a senior fellow at the Eisenhower Media Network, EMN, of uh, independent critical military and intelligence kind of veteran expert voices trying to get into media. And with that, uh, Greg, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Good to see you. Well, I mean, I think that there's such value in having you as the first guest because you can do things that, um, you know, better than the three of us can. And so, I mean, I'm just going to kind of open the floor for you at first to say, you know, some context and framing of the backstory. In other words, what, what was going on in a military, political and social sense in the lead up? Uh, and right. at the time, a winter soldier. Yeah. Um, well, I, I, I think what's important to begin with is that this is a time period where the, the Nixon administration has decided that um, that there is no possibility of, of what he says is a total military victory in Vietnam. Um, so the withdrawal of American troops has already begun. We see the first drawdown of American troops in um, in the spring and summer of, of 1969. And, um, and yet as the war continues and Nixon continues to expand the war, whether it's in Cambodia in 1970 or Laos in 1971, there's this increasing frustration, I think, of, of American veterans of, of trying to reconcile this idea that, that we're no longer in it to win and we're withdrawing. And if that's the case, then why are we continuing continuing to expand the war? And, and so I, I think by the time you get to mid-1970 um, and then into early 1971, which is just amazing that it's 50 years ago now, um, you really start to see the Vietnam veterans against the war as a home, a, a place where, where veterans really feel comfortable sharing their stories. And with that becomes this impetus to, to, to try and gain a, a sense of, uh, of a national voice to contest these 
um, um, these problematic policies that many of these veterans are seeing, even as Nixon is saying that we're withdrawing from Vietnam and kind of moving on, when you see the expansion of the war, um, this, as Nixon calls it, incursion into Cambodia in uh, in the spring, April of, of 1970, that leads to the Kent and Jackson State, Kent State and Jackson State um, killings here uh, inside the United States. Um, you see, again, another expansion of the war in Laos in, in early 1971, not long after the Winter Soldier uh, event. And so I, I think there's a real concern among veterans of, of trying to reconcile what's going on. And, and so the backstory for, for these specific hearings in, uh, in January of 1971 is that the Vietnam Veterans Against the War, the VVAW, trying to demonstrate that it can have a national voice. And what it does in in uh, over the Labor Day weekend in 1970s, it, it plans this this simulated search and destroy mission inside the United States, and they they dub it Operation Rapid American Withdrawal, Operation Raw, and what they call it is guerrilla theater. And so what the the planners do is they they, they organize this in a way that's going to be the first national demonstration against the war that's run by the Vietnam veterans against the war. And so what you do is you, you see is these veterans um, are working hand in hand with peace activists and they march from Morristown, New Jersey, the former um, headquarters of George Washington and the Continental Army to Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. And along the way, they conduct this guerrilla theater, these mock search and destroy operations across this path as they're moving from New Jersey into Pennsylvania. And they they reenact Vietnam village sweeps. They they, they conduct kidnapping of, of actors that are posing as Vietnam uh, Vietnamese civilians, and they, they demand intelligence from the local community. Uh, they're handing out flyers that are saying, you know, a U.S. infantry company just came through here. And it, it, it does actually cause um, quite a bit of media attention, creates a, a good deal of national media attention. And, and it's interesting here to, to see the, the generational um, tensions that you, you actually have a number of World War II veterans that are lining the route of March and they're heckling these Vietnam veterans and calling them unpatriotic and, and demeaning on them. There's even reports of, uh, of World War II veterans spitting on these Vietnam anti-war activists um, along this route of March. Um, and so, you know, I, I think this is an important context, Danny, because what it does is it really shows that that the Winter Soldier investigations and the hearings that, that will happen in Detroit are part of a much larger context. Um, and it's really an organization that's trying to find its voice and, and trying to grab all of these different uh, media outlets and, uh, and organizations across the country to, to demand attention being paid to what they're seeing as the atrocities that are occurring in South Vietnam. Well, you know, there's uh, two things that jumped out at me about what you were saying, and uh, and and one is something specific that that you've written about uh, about Winter Soldier and about you know gender uh, and its role sort of in the Vietnam War, but also in the Vietnam anti-war movement as well. And then the next thing that I want to talk about is kind of the scholarly debate about the effectiveness of the anti-war movement, yeah. and specifically the veteran one. So, but starting off top with something kind of specific that I I think is interesting. You know, we don't think a lot about female veterans uh, any time before really than post 9-11 or maybe the Gulf War. And uh, and you had written an article, which I just love the clever title, uh, Mansplaining Vietnam, 
which I believe is 2018. And, and you were saying that the, this is quoted, the construction of a male dominated memory began, you know, even as troops were departing from and dissenting against the war and talking about how of the hundred veterans and 16 civilians in the testimony uh, of Winter Soldier, there were four women, then they were kind of subordinated within, if not expunged from such narratives. And, um, and not to take anything away from Winter Soldier, but I just think, you know, when I read that article today, I thought, well, that's something you don't hear a whole lot about. So maybe if you had a few minutes on just that context in general. Yeah, I, I think even what you see in this in these demonstrations is a kind of gendered narrative of of the American experience in Vietnam. That it's only those male American soldiers that are able to speak directly to the war experience, and and part of that is is that they craft themselves um, as as victims of the war effort. Um, you know, Vietnam is something that that happens to American soldiers, not what American soldiers. Um, you know, due to Vietnamese. Um, but but I think what you start to see very early and even in these Winter Soldier investigations or the hearings um, is a belief or an assertion that the only people that can speak um, authoritatively about the American experience in Vietnam are, are those that have actually seen combat. And as we know, I mean, that, that just wasn't the American experience in Vietnam, less than, than, uh, than 25% of, of uh, American soldiers actually served in combat positions and, and saw combat. Um, and so this idea that, that only men could speak on behalf of, uh, of the larger organization and, and, and serve as, you know, if you will, subject matter experts on the war, I think starts in places like this, that um, only male veterans can tell their story, whether it's about what happened in Vietnam or like the case of the, the hearings in January in Detroit, um, in 1971, that, that only male veterans can can speak out against the war. And, and I think that's why you see some of the backlash against folks like Joan Baez or um, most um, famously, if not infamously, uh, against Jane Fonda, that she has no right to speak out against the war um, because she doesn't know. She's not a man. She didn't serve. And I think, um, uh, yeah, in the process, I, I think those um, veterans um, who were serving that um, we're not men do get overlooked, just like you see, I think, in um, in the global war on terror in Iraq and Afghanistan. And absolutely. And I think that, you know, just in my own limited experience, I've seen that sometimes within anti-war veteran communities, you know, even progressive ones, like sort of style progressive ones, there can sometimes right. be this measuring contest of yeah. like combat experience. And it's like, what is your credibility is somehow like how many times you were shot at or how many people you right. killed? And and that, of course, can be problematic. And yet I wonder, you know, leading into this kind of next question, because I've always been interested in like uh, histor historiography and debates within historians, because I'm a hyper geek, uh, you know, like you, I learned from the best. But the Vietnam War seems one of the more contested, right? Yeah. It's like Civil War, Alamo. You remember when we were teaching right, at West Point. Right, right. So I guess what I'm interested in is, you know, what do scholars say about the influence, effectiveness, or decisiveness of the civilian, but the, especially the military anti-war movement you know, events like Winter Soldier specifically in bringing the war to a close? And is there anything remotely close to a consensus developing among serious scholars on this? No, the short answer is I don't think so. This is, is still a hotly debated topic about the, the effectiveness of the overall, overall um, anti-war movement and, and the, clearly the veterans place in it. You know, what the, the veterans do, I think, is, is place um, politicians in, in a 
in a problematic place, right? That it's easy for folks like Nixon or Vice President Agnew to, um, what does he call them? The uh, nattering nabobs, right? Of negativism and, and you know, these, these weak-kneed college elites that are avoiding the war. It's much harder and, com and, and comes with a much greater political risk to attack veterans who are speaking out against the war. Um, but to answer your question, I, I don't think there is consensus among Vietnam historians on the effectiveness of the um, of the anti-war movement as a whole. There, there's even still significant debate of of when the peak influence was. Did it happen in the aftermath of the Tet Offensive in 1968? Did it happen after Kent State and Jackson State? Is it happening now during the Winter Soldier investigations or or this huge march that will occur in the aftermath of the Winter Soldier? Um, you know, this march on the Capitol. And I, I don't think we're going to come to consensus anytime soon um, on this question. And, and, and clearly, the, the the place of veterans inside of this larger anti-war movement is still part of that that argument that is unfolding today. I, I found it interesting that Vietnam has maintained this uh, kind of hold or grip. Maybe it's lessening a little, but it, it's still pretty pervasive. Yeah. It seems that from you know El Salvador, nineteen seventy nine, at least. Right right through. It's like people will look at Central America, they'll look at the Gulf War, they'll look at Iraq and Afghanistan, and then they see it through some sort of Vietnam lens, but it doesn't always seem that it's an accurate one or even factually accurate. Why do you think that that is? Why the hold of that? I think in large part because it's it's still Americans in general wrestling with the fact that, that this is the the first episode in, in the um, in the post-World War II era where we're confronted with the limitations of American power. And I've said this many times. I mean, this is, this is why we continue to struggle with Vietnam is because it doesn't fit the, the narrative of uh, American exceptionalism and the, the standard narrative of, of progress over time. It's, it's, it's hard to contest, contest the fact, and although some still do, um, that the United States did not win in Vietnam. It did not achieve its political objectives. And, um, and I think with that then comes, should come a lot of soul searching, but instead I think what you, you find is a lot of mental gymnastics to, to move around the, the problem of, of us not accomplishing our political objectives. And the, I would argue the um, overall, the, the misuse of American military power in the attempt to achieve those political objectives. And I, I think that's what you see these veterans speaking out against. They're, they're seeing the, the political conflict um, unfolding inside South Vietnam. They're seeing how the application of armed force is upsetting that political conflict and, and not doing anything really to solve it. In fact, making it much, much worse, especially for Vietnamese civilians. And so that's why they're coming back and, and speaking out because um, they don't feel that their side of the story is being told and um, and and are genuinely, I, I think, concerned, upset, horrified by by what America has become in Vietnam, and that's what they're speaking out against. And and I think that's really the genesis for um, these hearings that you see in Detroit in early 1971. One of the things that you know we mentioned in the intro, and and that you touched on a bit, specifically with the World War II veterans. I mean, heckling and like spitting uh, reportedly on some of these veterans. Right. It seems to me that, you know, a lot of different groups are like this internally, but but veterans in general are, can be kind of brutal, um, sort of like invented or at least there have been longtime strong appliers of like modern day trolling. Right. <laughs> and, and I kind of want to like end with some of the relevance uh, and, and not lessen so much, but like comparisons to today and where we're at. And you wrote a piece about a year ago, almost a year ago for the History News Network 
Um, and, and I thought it had a provocative and kind of dead on title and, and not just because I was profiled in it. I think more importantly, Ron Kovic was right. Who was prominent anti-war. And we both had a chance to meet him. Right. And Vietnam war activist born on the 4th of July. But the, the title of it was, you know, patriotic veterans only please. And just, you know, really quick. I mean, you had said at one point in the article, citizens may reflexively honor their countrymen and countrymen who have served and continue to serve our nation in uniform, but they are, they too often are eager to attack those who don't fit their preconceived notions about what it means to be a veteran. For those who break socially sanctioned views of, of a patriotic veteran, public wrath can be as swift as it is outraged. So I guess maybe if you could kind of touch on just, you know, why that is, you know, how, how it played out in Vietnam and what you think the lesson is forward, um, not only for the IVAW event in 2008, but, you know, here in the transition 20 years of war. I, I think in large part because uh, we want to believe a certain storyline. We, we want to believe that that greatest, genera greatest generation narrative that we've constructed, um, this idea that um, selfless citizen soldiers go off to war, they fight a good war um, for very positive ideals, and then come back and are honored for their service and, and uh, very easily reintegrate back into society and continue their service to the country in, in different ways. And, and I think what you see in, in the Winter Soldier hearings is, um, is a bunch of veterans contesting that narrative and, and saying quite simply that it's not true, that they're sharing this testimony and allegations of atrocities and, and criminal behavior. And you know the opening statement from this Lieutenant William Crandall talks about the Americans going overseas to preserve the peace and instead, it, as he says, all we did was set all of Indochina aflame. And I just don't think that that's a message that most Americans want to hear. You know, they're arguing that Milai is not an isolated incident. And they're, they're arguing that war is an atrocity producing situation that's bordering, as one um, veteran says, on, on full and final genocide. And, and that's not the narrative that Americans want to hear. They want to hear that we go overseas, um, we send our you know, our strong, young, good men overseas, um, and they represent us well. They achieve their objectives. They they help spread democracy and, and uh, American values and ideals, and then come home um, to the uh, as victors. And these veterans are are speaking in in completely different language of of burning villages and cutting off ears and torturing prisoners and and the testimonies make it sound like the entire U.S. Army is just this, this ruthless mob that is running across all of South Vietnam. And that's just not the story that we want to we want to tell ourselves. And, and I think with that then comes a backlash. And so if you don't fit that that um, model, uh, that constructed model of a patriotic veteran who is proud of his service, um, I think there are there are consequences for that, and and you do see pushback against the VVAW um, as it continues to um, tell this story in Detroit, and then certainly as it moves on to D.C. in April um, on its march on the Capitol. Danny Andrew Basevich here. May I ask a couple of questions of Greg? Please do, sir. Greg, where where does Korea fit in this uh, narrative? that you're describing. In other words, World War II, the good war, right. uh, Vietnam, the, the, the not so good war right. uh, that finds this uh, 
very uh, significant uh, resistance by soldier participants. How does Korea fit in? Which, which to my mind is another uh, war that is ambiguous in terms of its strategic significance, but also ambiguous morally. That's question number one. Question number two, and maybe you guys have already talked about this. And I apologize because I'm just now uh, joining. But how does all that relate to where we are now? Uh, you know, as we approach 20 years of war uh, in the greater Middle East on a smaller scale than, than Vietnam or Korea or World War II, uh, but, uh, and I, I hope I'm not trespassing on others' views here, but notwithstanding uh, the significance of veterans' voices, in opposing our so-called endless wars, by and large, it seems to me that opposition has not come anywhere near uh, what it was in Vietnam. So two questions for you as a historian. Yeah, thanks, Anne. I appreciate it. I think in regard to Korea, um, how it fits in is uh, is really interesting. And I, I think the word you used is, is spot on ambiguous, that, that we, we fight this war. It, it results in a negotiated settlement that, that Americans, I think, are clearly uncomfortable with. Um, and yet at the same time, I, I think many policymakers in D.C. can still make the argument that uh, communism was contained, if not successfully rolled back. So there is there may have been a, a negotiated settlement that many Americans were uncomfortable with and were questioning the, the sacrifices to, to get that negotiated settlement. But at least you can continue to make the, the argument that the policy objectives were obtained and uh, this was a successful application of, of what um, you know, will be, become known as con containment strategy. And, and I think the problem with Vietnam is you just don't have that. It's the, there is no argument to be made, especially after the fall of Saigon in 1975, that you have rolled back communism. Hmm. So I, I think what happens in the aftermath of Korea, unlike um, Vietnam, is, is folks um, move away from the argument as, as quietly as they can. They, they accept the negotiated settlement and, and they move away from it. And I, I think, you know, Obviously, it becomes known as the Forgotten War for a reason. Um, and I think it's because of that. It's um, that, that negotiated settlement allows us to, to move the conversation elsewhere um, where Vietnam just doesn't give you, um, afford you that opportunity. I, I, think I, I think I agree with that. And, and what I would add, though, is that, and tell me if you disagree, during Korea, the the argument that communism was a monolith, that the Kremlin was calling the shots, and that whatever happened anywhere uh, in the communist world was an expression of this conspiracy uh, that posed a threat to the United States, a, a threat of the highest order. By the time we get to Vietnam, particularly as, as the level of violence escalates, 
And I, tell me if you disagree with this. American intellectuals begin to engage with mm -hmm. the rationale for the war. The argument of, you know, the communist mon monolith disintegrates. Right. You know, the realization that, for example, China doesn't take its marching orders from the Kremlin doesn't pass muster. The realization that the Vietnamese, in fact, have <clears throat> at best a complex relationship uh, with the Chinese, the, the, whole, the whole thing kind of falls apart, uh, which, which is a way of saying, I think, that the, the debate about the war and its historical context matters right. hugely uh, in terms of, of shaping attitudes and therefore uh, empowers uh, Vietnam veterans to to speak and to be taken uh, seriously. Is that, is that kind of right? I, I think it's absolutely right. Um, I, I think without question, there there is a, a Cold War consensus in the early 1950s um, during the Korean War and in, in the immediate aftermath that, that cuts across the American foreign policy establishment and, and academia as well. Um, that McCarthyism by 1953 might be on its last legs, but that idea, as you, you noted, of a, a monolithic, expansive, expansionistic communism, uh, international communism driven by Moscow um, is very much part of uh, American political life as, as well as, uh, you know, American cultural understanding of what the Cold War is turning into. And I think you do see, especially in the aftermath of the 1968 Tet Offensive, a questioning of that consensus and, and the assumptions about on which the, that consensus is based on. Um, you know, Tet allows not only intellectuals, but I think um, those in Congress to start questioning governmental policy because enough of their constituents are asking harder questions um, and, and wondering if, you know, the, those early assumptions that, you know, NSC 68 are built upon are, are still valid in a, in a changing world. And so I, I think you're absolutely right that that historical context is, is crucial to understanding um, uh, not only the consensus, but as you see with these Vietnam veterans against the war, those that are willing to stand up and, and, and vocally question that consensus. So, so what's your, what's your judgment, uh, and I didn't want my question to sort of uh, give my view, but I mean, what, what's your judgment about the intensity and uh, impact of opposition to our post 9-11 wars by <clears throat> participants and how that may or may not compare <clears throat> to the Vietnam case? My sense is, and I'd like to, I'd be really interested to get everybody else's opinion on this well, is that I don't think it was as well organized. I don't think that there was a national organization that reached the, the level of efficiency and effectiveness that the Vietnam Veterans Against the War organization had. Um, you know, when you look at, uh, as Danny mentioned earlier, the ability to kind of bring in big names, um, you know, Donald Sutherland, Joan Baez, uh, Fonda before she was, you know, completely ridiculed, um, I, I would argue unfairly, but um, the ability to um, 
to have well-respected veterans like John Kerry speak to the Senate Foreign uh, or the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations in, in such an impassioned way in, in April of 1971. I, my sense is I, I just don't know if you've had that that level of, of organizational effectiveness in the veteran anti-war movement from the national perspective that you saw back in the, the late 60s and early 70s. And again, I'd be interested to hear others' opinion on this, but my well, you sense know, I, the grassroots movement that you saw in the aftermath of 9-11 just yeah. never moved to a, a singular organization that really had a, a, a punch politically inside D.C. Well, I was about to say that the, the, the veterans opposing the Vietnam War <clears throat> had the benefit of a national environment that was in the mood to protest. Right. I mean, the 1960s was the was was the the decade of of, of protest, and my guess would be that that worked to the benefit of Vietnam veterans who wanted their opposition to be heard. Contrast that with the present moment, and the contrast is interesting. I think we don't, we don't live in the 1960s. But we do live in a moment of significant uh, dissent. Uh, I think I would say that the principal target of dissent would would relate to race, mm -hmm. not exclusively. But I mean, that's that's I think the the big issue on the nation's kind of protest agenda. But I, again, here, let me know what you think. It doesn't seem to me that that has benefited the veterans' protest effort. In other words, there's a lot of people who are upset about racism in America, and they ought to be. Right. The number of people who are upset about militarism in America, in my personal opinion, is a hell of a lot smaller. Right. Why is that? Why, 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 don't, why don't those two sort of protest themes reinforce one another? Does does the nine do the nine eleven attacks make it more difficult to protest American foreign policy? Ah, because if you are branded as protesting foreign ah. policy in the post nine eleven era, does that not only make you uh, unpatriotic, but but also um, you know clearly you don't? I think that's that's got to be it. In other words. It's one. It's one thing to claim that the uh, Gulf and Tonkin incident was right. contrived and bogus. A little bit different to say the same thing about nine eleven. I think that's a very good point. And I think you know you see this in um, you know I, I, I did a review of H. R. McMaster's recent book Battlegrounds, and and you see that argument in in the former National Security Advisor's um, work that you know if you don't agree with me then you're putting America at risk because America in the post 9-11 moments that we're still living in two decades later is by far the most dangerous era the United States has ever been in. And if you mm. don't um, believe in my argument for militarization of American foreign policy, a coercive approach to, um, uh, to our relations overseas, then you are naive and, and in the process of that uh, naivety, you're putting America at risk. And I don't know if that was the case back, even in the Cold War. You're affirming, you're affirming my decision not to read uh, 
McMaster's book. <laughs> uh, so I'm really glad that this conversation kind of kicked off. You know, I mean, it's like a, it, we always have a, a plan for sequence until something interesting that's worth commenting comes up. So I, I was hoping that, you know, before we let Greg go and give his kind of final comments and then focus a little bit on some specific questions for Colonel Basevich for, for Andrew, uh, Giovanni Reyes, who's who's been a you know been a leader in, in about face, Iraq veterans against the war, kind of pulled me into the organization when I was heck still on active duty. Uh, I thought maybe he could weigh in a little bit on some of the you know the perspective and experience from the post 9/11 vets. You know he'll be on, he'll be on later to tell his specific story, but I think it could be valuable now. Hi, uh, thank you guys for uh, for inviting me. But uh, I wanted to point out uh, interesting conversation. Uh, they're just going on about the post 9-11 era and why the protest is not as it was in the 1960s. I went to see uh, Kathleen Cleaver, uh, Cleaver uh, former Black Panther uh, at a, at a, at a um, Trinity University. I went to go see her speak and then she was talking to, uh, to the students there and she was saying that, she was telling the students that we're, you know, you're, you're, you know, you guys are the millennials, you guys are smarter. You guys, you know, have access to all this information. You know, you guys, you know, um, you, you guys, you know, just like uh, Colonel Bishop has said, you know, uh, there's a lot of dissent. Um, you know, it's prime. You have to make the change that you know that, that, that you want to see. And she was giving all this, you know, this this emotional, you know, pep rally, this uh, type of thing to the to the audience there. And I asked a question. I asked her <clears throat> um, when it was, my, you know, I asked a question. She took my question was that why is it, you know, that, you know, there's a lot of dissent, uh, there's a lot of, you know, movements and a lot of students, uh, but there's not a lot of interest in international things, and not a lot of interest in in war. We've been at war at that time, we've been at war for about 15 years at that time. Um, there's hardly a peep on, on that. Um, her reply was, it has to do with a lot of media. Uh, media does not, is not focusing on that, therefore, the interest is it's not on it versus in my understanding vietnam uh there were more the war in vietnam was was televised was there was more media focusing on vietnam um at the time so you know you couldn't hardly ignore it uh today there's a lot of you know there's a lot of media there's a lot of channels a lot of ways to get information but you know when, you, when you're overloading the population with information you know attention just become like more expensive you know um so so that's that was that was her that was her reply you know and I asked a college student at another opportunity, asked her, you know, I, I went to an interview. They interviewed me about, you know, back then it was about ISIS and and about uh, Islamophobia and uh, and all that, right? And it was uh, the professor that interviewed me had a student with her and she was taking notes as, um, as she was asking the questions. And then at the end, I asked her a question, I asked him, you know, why, you know, in the 60s, 70s, you know, there was a lot of student activism you know, um, you know, against the wars. Today, you don't see that as much. And what what are students talking about today? What are college students talking about today? So, college the the professor said that's a good question. So, you refer the question to her to her aide, and uh, and her reply was, well, what's pressing our mind was what's what's for you know what's foremost in our mind is, you know, how are you going to pay this this debt? You know, this college mm -hmm. debt. That's, that's the first you know, <laughs> that's, that's that's what's pressing. You know, and how are we going to get a job? You know, mm -hmm. so after I graduate college, you know, that's so that was her for her her main concerns. And also at the lesser concern, but not so much lesser, but another concern that 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 according to her, a lot of college students have is more in a realm of identity, you know, 
of identity politics, you know, and 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 queer and queer LGBTQ empowerment, and women empowerment, uh, you know, and uh, uh, you know, you know, black empowerment, you know, uh, all these other identity stuff, but pretty much not so much focus on foreign policy because foreign policy seems to be complicated and alien, so not to focus much on it. Um, so that, that's what I would say, um, you know, today, difference today, as far as why movement doesn't focus much on the 20 year never ending wars that we are right now uh, versus, um, you know, you know, in the 60s and 70s where it had, where they were more focused on it, where, where just like uh, Colonel Bishop said, there was a decade of protests, you know, and it just so happened that the, uh, that the Vietnam War was going on at the same time. Can I jump in on this? I Please. <laughs> I just have a question. I, I mean, uh, I also th I think the easiest way to connect militarism with everything that's going on is to talk about the militarism and the police, and to talk about the police tactics that are being that like they have used overseas, or the the use of the way that we've done things in Iraq and Afghanistan over the last twenty years now, you know, and how that has come home. I think that actually really resonates with folks because then they can see the line. They can see the fact of like, oh, this is stuff that we've done over there and we're bringing it over here. And this is this is why it's impacting you. And it's it's just harder because so many kids, we talk a lot about on the podcast about an economic draft, about the idea that, you know, the military basically wants kids to join in in lieu of getting a job when people are concerned about economics and everything. It's like, well, here's a job. Here's a way to get college. Here's a way to do all these things. And so people can look at that as a benefit if they're just looking at it from the that standpoint. And, you know, we know that the military has just gotten smaller and smaller and people spend more and more time deployed. So there's less and less people that have a stake in it that there isn't a, there isn't a draft, you know, people don't have to worry about that. And that really does make a huge difference. So that's one of the things that, um, that I'm going to ask, uh, Colonel Basevich about a little bit specifically just because of some of his work and, uh, on this subject specifically, the book Street Trust and really throughout a lot of his work. And, uh, and I think that that's an important context as well. Uh, before I do that, um, Greg, I wanted to kind of give you an opportunity to, to, to give some like closing thoughts on the, the relevance and legacy of this. And before I just do that, I found a uh, another article uh, where you were sort of quoted a couple of times and it. It made me laugh a little and I'm not sure how it uh, relates, but maybe it does in terms of legacy and the changes within, within the military is what you're kind of talking about, but especially in the veteran community. Uh, it was a 2015 article on the 40th anniversary of the fall of Saigon. And uh, you know, you were still active in the army. Uh, we were working together at that point. You were on the faculty at West Point. And there's this interesting part where the author wrote regarding your sort of critical take on the war overall. And he says, I asked Colonel Dadis if his skepticism is now widely expressed at West Point. And next says, in the history department, Dadis said with a smile. And you know that, that kind of made me laugh because obviously we used to always joke about being the hippie department, maybe along with English and at war with social or whatever. But, you know, I mean, just any closing thoughts for a few minutes before uh, we transition some of the questions to Colonel Lazer. And of course, feel free to stay on and, and weigh in. Like we yeah, yeah it's a great conversation. Thanks for hosting it. I think uh, maybe as a, a summary, the problem that Vietnam veterans against the war faced is is a similar one for uh, veterans today that are opposing uh, you know, the over-reliance of armed force 
in American foreign policy. And, and I think it's amplified today in, in the sense that the problem today is having your voice heard in this age of, of daily rage. And you know, clearly the VVAW encountered similar resistance in getting their message out. But I think the challenge, especially in, in the immediate post-Trump uh, era is, is that we have so much to recover from in terms of all these domestic body blows that we've suffered in terms of the pandemic and, and the economy and, and white supremacists and income inequality and, and police violence. And the, the challenge with all of this is as folks are getting on social media and, and daily just raging against the, you know, the, the, the problem of the day is how to inspire Americans to push back in an effective way against the militarization of American foreign policy, if not militarization of American society, when there are all these other domestic issues that are unraveling at such a quick pace on a daily um, basis that are having such a, a huge impact on, on, on many, many Americans, if not majority of Americans. And so, you know, for, for an organization like um, a veterans organization against uh, the militarization of, of American foreign policy to um, to find a voice in, in this environment, I think is the key challenge. And um, and perhaps there are ways um, for us to go back and, and, and do some better historical analysis of the Vietnam veterans against the war to see how they were able to, to get that national voice and, and have that voice heard um, to the point where they were able to have representatives from their organization giving impassioned testimony in front of the Senate, and and at least in some way we can debate the effect of this, but having some impact on on the overall anti-war movement. Let me respond to that, which I think is exactly correct. And there, I would add this additional uh, factor uh, has to do with our with our politics at the present moment. So, you know, we got a two-party system. Republican Party, for all practical purposes, has abandoned any conception of, of any principle whatsoever. Uh, whether the party will, will reconstitute itself in a meaningful way very much remains to be seen. The Democratic Party, it seems to me, is divided between a progressive wing and a centrist wing and the centrists have prevailed. That is the that is the meaning of the uh, of the Biden presidency up to this point. That is to say, the part of the Democratic Party that might be responsive to the anti-militarism critique uh, is, at the present moment at least, kind of pushed into a uh, a, a, a minority status. Uh, and, and as long as that's the case, and there's no indication whatsoever, as far as I can tell, for example, that the Biden administration is interested in reducing military spending, in reevaluating the, you know, the global empire of American bases. Uh, so our politics today is also not conducive to the kind of critique that veterans who who oppose our never-ending wars uh, are in a position to offer. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point, Annie. And in short, how do you incentivize politicians like Joe Biden 
um, to take these matters um, and put them to the forefront of, uh, of reevaluating American policy, both domestic and foreign. Yeah, and, and, and when, in fact, uh, as we've already noted, he's, he's got a plate full of problems, uh, you know, d domestically. So I think that that defines, to some degree, defines our predicament in trying to oppose, oppose American militarism. Well, uh, Greg, thank you for you know providing so much of the context, and uh, and, and hope you'll be able to stay on for a bit. Um, well, I guess you're on the West Coast, so it's a little bit lighter than our Massachusetts uh, and East Coast people. Um, you know, uh, Colonel Basevich has, has already been weighing in, uh, and but I just want to introduce him for anyone who's listening who might not kind of know his background briefly. And you know, the next two people that we're going to really you know kind of hone in on are, are first Andrew Basevich and then uh, Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson. And what's interesting about that is, the, you know, they're two vets of the war, uh, of the war in Vietnam, uh, even if not, you know, both active dissenters at the time. I think it's interesting to see and get the perspective, you know, from someone who was in combat. Uh, Colonel Bainbridge in particular was in, in combat or not long before the, the hearings and, uh, and, and get their view at the time and then some of the evolution. So that's one of the things we're going to focus on. So, um you know, Colonel Basevich, Andrew Basevich is a 69 graduate of West Point, 1969. Uh, later went to Princeton, served in the army for a number of years, uh, 1970 to 71 tour in Vietnam, and then also a tenure on the history faculty, which I guess seems to be a, a running theme with some of the people that I collude with. Uh, retired just following the 1991 Persian Gulf War, came an academic, he's now a writer. You may have seen his books, he's pretty prolific. New American Militarism, Limits of Power, War for the Greater Middle East, Age of Illusions, and then coming up here after the apocalypse, America's role in the world transformed. He's now the president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Uh, and he's also someone I've read uh, and admired from afar for more than 15 years. Uh, and I'm, I've been feeling privileged to you know, collaborate with him on some projects and get to know him. I had read the New American Militarism, uh, Andrew, as uh, leading into my first question, as a senior, I think, as I told you at, at West Point, Colonel Ty Sedgley, who was a lieutenant colonel at the time, assigned it. And, you know, I was interested to start out with some of your own context, because, uh, you know, from a personal level, we were officers in the same branch of the Army uh, at around the same rank when we did our tours. You know, when I was in Iraq in 2006 and you, you went to Vietnam in 1970, you touched on some of this context in your 2013 book, Breach of Trust. And it was one of the first times I'd seen you really kind of dig into a Vietnam vignette. And you talked about uh, a Captain William uh, Reichert, uh, USMA 68, West Point 68, who was killed by one of his own soldiers. And you talk a bit about the, you know, your unit, first, first of the 10th Cavalry, not being the crack outfit that it used to be and some of the internal problems in Vietnam, but also in society. And I think the line that struck me was you wrote in the book, the problem was Vietnam, of course, you know, about the army kind of having these troubles. So maybe you can give us a little context of what it was like to be uh, a combat soldier at the time and how you viewed what was happening outside in the, in the anti-war descent as well as the veteran descent. So my year in Vietnam was from the summer of 1970 to the summer of 1971. So we're talking after Tet. We're talking uh, during the Vietnamization period, that is to say, when the policy of the Nixon administration was to turn over the conduct of the war <clears throat> to the Army of the Republic of Vietnam, ARVN, uh, in order to facilitate the continuing withdrawal of, uh, of US forces. Uh, unspoken, uh, but clearly understood by all, at least in the 
unit where I was in was that uh, avoiding getting more Americans killed was uh, a, a major uh, uh, mission. Uh, we weren't going to avoid contact with the enemy, uh, but we certainly were not going to go out of our way to uh, get a bunch of Americans killed. That said, the, the most uh, instructive <clears throat> part of my experience during that year <clears throat> was to witness at first hand the disintegration of the United States Army as a consequence of a misguided and protracted war. The disintegration manifested itself in, in many different ways, uh, erosion of discipline, uh, really almost unbelievable uh, racial conflict in the ranks, uh, very widespread uh, drug abuse, uh, contempt for the chain of command, uh, and just kind of, uh, and, and, and I do not want to suggest that this was the, ca the case in every other unit at that time. I'm only saying this was the case in my unit at that time. Somebody kind of holding things together uh, posed a bit of a, of, a, of a challenge. I was uh, not uh, well informed, I think, about the historical context of the war. Uh, I did not wish to think very deeply about the political controversies surrounding the war back home. Uh, I wanted to uh, do my duty and not embarrass myself and, and go home. Uh, but the experience stuck with me. <clears throat> and really my education with regard to Vietnam only began after, <clears throat> after I, uh, uh, after I derosed, and I, and I and I began by reading books about the French Indochina War. It, it was a way to sort of put my foot into the issue without actually uh, dealing with it uh, directly. In other words, to to examine what the, the French experience from the end of World War II until 1954 and, and Dien Bien Phu and their and their success. And I was rooting for the French because. Because I saw there, uh, I saw the war as an anti-communist episode, and uh, I didn't see it as an anti-imperialist episode, and so I was rooting for the French, and of course they lost. My education with regard to the war continued uh, in subsequent years as a result of a lot of reading and a lot of reflection, but I have to say I think I only really fully came to a judgment about the Vietnam War uh, after 9/11 and with the uh, invasion of Iraq, uh, which I viewed as uh, an act of such uh, recklessness uh, that it caused me to think very deeply about really all of the rest of 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 U.S. history, America's role in the world. And in particular, it caused me to rethink uh, the, the Cold War because the Iraq War was such a radical contradiction 
of everything that I had been raised to believe in with regard to uh, the history of the United States, particularly since the end of World War II. So as an active duty officer for you know 20 plus years, I was not a dissenter. I probably should have been. I was not a dissenter. Uh, I'm kind of a late in the game dissenter. Uh, and, and I regret that it took me so long uh, to come to the, the position that I now uh, inhabit. But, you know, there you have it. Some of us are slow learners. I'm a slow learner. Well, you know, you'd mentioned that you, st you stay in after your Vietnam tour for, you know, about 20 more years, rise through the ranks. Um, you've been quoted a few times, I think it's in one of your books about saying, you know, I didn't have an original thought until I was out of uniform. <laughs> and, uh, and I remember that striking me. But but at the same time, I mean, just to kind of uh, like push in a little bit, I I'm, I mean, I, I imagine that even though it was 9-11 uh, and then, re you know, retiring for that, that, you know, brought forth some more in-depth thoughts. Uh, you know, was there any change during your time in service? Uh, what was the West Point faculty like? You know, how did you, did you have evolving views even before then on these anti-war soldiers, right? So these anti-war veterans, I mean, how did you view them in 1970, 71? And did that change at all until you were out of uniform? Uh, <clears throat> I think that I imagined myself to be, as an active duty officer, I imagined myself to be something of an independent thinker. Uh, and so I published a couple of books. Uh, I published a few articles in which I was sort of gently uh, pushing back against orthodoxy. Uh, but again, I say, I say this with some embarrassment. I didn't do anything that was going to jeopardize my prospects for continued uh, upward mobility. When I got out of the army, uh, and it, you know, there was a it was it was a it was not an easy transition, you know, to go from this way of life to a new way of life. But it didn't take long for me to understand that my new way of life freed from the responsibilities of being a serving officer, invited me to begin to think differently. And, and again, as you suggested, this occurred basically just as the Cold War was ending. So the framework of analysis that I had adhered to since I was a very young man simply lost relevance. We were in a new world. We were in the post-Cold War world. And it was a world in which many prominent figures purported to understand very clearly what it was all about. That we were now the indispensable nation. That we were the sole superpower. That after uh, Operation Desert Storm, we possessed a military superior to any other scene in all of history, that the triumph of liberal democratic capitalism was now inevitable. All we needed to do was to push on this open door uh, and it was all going to happen. 
So I began to watch this narrative unfold. Uh, and the and to me, the as a former soldier, the overarching theme of this new narrative was a conviction that by putting American military power to work, we can fix any problem that we confront. So the post-Cold War world is a world of intense military activism. And after 9-11, military activism results in miscalculation, tragedy, and basically uh, squandering uh, the position to which we had risen by you know by the time of the fall of the berlin wall that was my story and that's really the story that i've been kind of uh, trying to tell for the last uh, couple of decades and i've always found it particularly interesting and um unfortunately colonel wilkerson uh has another commitment and it's going to pop off but um you know this idea of uh, it sounds like but it sounds from everything that i've read and the officers that even taught me especially the colonels who taught me at west point 2000 you know one through five it, it's not a dissimilar experience uh this notion of the military falls apart the military is sort of saved by this new generation that then triumphs in the gulf war uh it, it, it's a very like teleological narrative and, and it makes sense and, and i think one of the things that frames that that narrative is this transition that you've written about so much that I think does have an effect on the anti-war movement, obviously, uh, especially the veteran anti-war movement, is this transition from a conscript to a volunteer professionalized force. So that really the last thing that, you know, I wanted to ask you before we get Chris Lombardi to come on and talk about the long historical track record of GI resistance is, um, you know, you've written extensively about the motivations, the process and the ramifications of ending the draft and moving to this all volunteer force and in, in breach of trust, you had said that in the wake of Vietnam, the American people devised or accepted a, a single crisp answer to the questions of you know, Vietnam, which is not us, except as spectators, Americans abrogated any further responsibility for war in all of its aspects. And with the people opting out, war became the exclusive province of the state. Uh, what effect do you think that that has had uh, on the anti-war veteran movement, uh, the response to it and the volume and scope of it? Well, the big effect on on the population more broadly is that it 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 underwrote irresponsibility. You know, as long as I say I support the troops, I'm cool. Uh, you know, I have no responsibility uh, beyond that, uh, and I think that's a major explanation for the horrendous failures. Uh, that we have sustained, particularly since 9-11, the misuse of, of military power <clears throat> uh, that really provides a context for this uh, conversation. Now, you know, how does that affect Viet Vietnam, how's that, not Vietnam, how does it affect veteran uh, opposition to misguided military policies? I'm not sure, others need to, need to help us here. But maybe part of it is this, that uh, this uh, put, putting of veterans on a pedestal, you know, that they're better than the rest of us folks because they're veterans. In an odd way, uh, 
de deprives them of a critical voice. We don't put veterans on a pedestal so that they can tell us how screwed up the country is or how screwed up our policies are. In a sense, we put them on the pedestal so that they can affirm that the sacrifices they have made in Iraq, Afghanistan, wherever, were, quote unquote, worth it. Uh, I, I, I do believe, I've long believed that we have not, as a people, as a nation, we have not yet come to an appreciation of how uh, pernicious the abandonment of the citizen soldier tradition was with its replacement by this so-called all-volunteer force, which really is a, which, which really is what the what the founders would have called a standing army. Uh, and frankly, in Washington, as far as I can tell, there is no interest uh, in exploring uh, that, uh, you know, that subject. Danny, I'm going to have to move on. Please, please. Um, so uh, thanks so much for uh, coming on and for offering so much, uh, you know, interaction with, with the last guest, Greg Dadis. Always a pleasure to have you on. And uh, let's do it again sometime. It's great. Greg, nice beard. Good seeing you. It was great, great comment. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye-bye. Uh, Henry, I, I think, um, uh, Giovanni, did you want to, uh, you know, Colonel Base with yourself, I'm not sure if you wanted to jump in with your question because uh, someone, particularly Greg, might be able to jump in on this, or Chris Lombardi, who we're going to introduce next. I did, I did. I wanted to, um, uh, I wanted to ask the, I wanted to have, take the opportunity to ask uh, both Colonel Vasevich and, and uh, Colonel Wilkinson, um, and 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 Colonel Vesey has hit some of the points there as far as a question would was if were there in comparison to Vietnam the sixties to today and the lack of of uh, the anti war movement that that was part of the nineteen sixties right was there also an an adulation a hero worshiping for the for the military back then as it is today um, and also wanted to ask. Um, if if he feels that that the 1980s is partially responsible for cultivating the culture of of soldier worshiping uh military worshiping you know um of cultivating that you know um you know uh that you know uh, america no matter what you know uh, that type of culture you know and uh fortunately left where maybe someone else can um can answer also before I forget the he talks about the the professional army, and I was in the army for 14 years, and I still have a lot of a lot of roots and relationship with people in the military, and and I was wondering right is has this professional military this professional army has they created a a military caste within the American society? Uh, that's one of the questions I wanted to ask. Uh, well, let, we're going to introduce Chris Lombardi. Um, I'm not sure if Chris uh, is on or wanted to comment on that. If if she if she's not at this moment, then um, Chris, if you had a comment, please jump in, and then we'll introduce you after. And if not, maybe Colonel Dadis has something to add uh, on that subject. And if not, I'm verbose, so we'll, I'll, I'll figure something out. It's a great two great questions. 
why don't we, uh, Greg, why don't you go ahead and jump sure. in? Yeah, I, I think the um, I think there is something to be said for the the Reagan era and the rehabilitation of uh, of the American combat soldier in Vietnam, a, a part of where we're at today. Um, you know, this idea, as Susan Jeffords called it, the remasculinization of America in the aftermath of Vietnam to to take this pretty traumatizing historical event for many Americans and recast it as, as uh, actually Jimmy Carter will start this uh, and then obviously um, uh, Reagan will run with it. This idea that Vietnam was in fact a noble cause and the redemption of the veteran occurs, I think, very much in the 1980s. You see it in, in popular culture, right? That, that uh, we move from the, the tra traumatized uh, veteran in the 70s from taxi driver and coming home to when you get to the 1980s, you're now seeing uh, a much more remasculinized and, and rehabilitated veteran in uh, Rambo and Chuck Norris missing in action films and, and Arnold Schwarzenegger that all of these, these hyper-masculinized veterans um, are demonstrating that America is back in an enforceable manner. Um, and I think the pendulum then continues to swing into the post 9-11 moment where um, uh, there is a collective, I would argue, a, a collective national guilt for how Americans treated Vietnam veterans. And we want to ensure then that that doesn't happen again as veterans come home from Iraq and Afghanistan. And so you do see this reflexive uh, adulation, veneration for the, the veteran to the point where I, I think it limits the breadth of conversation that we we can't have an honest discussion about how much money we are spending, god awful amounts of money we're spending on the defense budget for fear of being branded as not supporting veterans. Um, and I think that is in large part a, a reaction to the American experience in Vietnam and that rehabilitation process that occurs in the 1980s. And, and we're fearful of, um, of having conversations about the militarization of foreign policy for uh, because we may then politically be branded as as unpatriotic, not supporting the veteran, and 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 nobody wants to stand up for that, especially if you're running for political office. No, I, I think that the the Reagan pivot is really important. One of our uh, one of your former instructors and uh, my former colleagues, Ben Griffin, writes about Reagan and and film and culture and the, this guy, you know, this this is a president who says that Vietnam was a noble cause. It's like a full rehabilitation and then this sense of a national penance. And, and I wonder how much of the adulation comes out of that. I mean, some of it's cynical, of course, in order to perpetuate wars, but I think some of it becomes culture that takes on an inertia of its own. Uh, you mentioned film. I mean, the 1980s are the most sanitized war films of all time. And I grew up on them, right? I mean. Uh, Top Gun is, is is ridiculous, and Rambo is, is ridiculous in a number of ways, and so different from the dark classic '70s film. Um, with with that being said, I'm I'm going to pivot over to Henry to because I think that uh, Chris Lombardi, with her scholarship and just broad focus of the long track record of this like GI resistance, is going to be able to probably speak to a lot of some of these same things in the questions that Henry has for her and that our discussion that develops. So uh, let let's bring Chris in and uh, and kind of talk this piece. Get all my buttons pushed here. 
So um, I want to introduce uh, Chris Lombardi. Uh, she is a, a journalist, um, has been writing about war and peace for more than 20 years. Her work has appeared uh, in The Nation, The Philadelphia Inquirer, and uh, WHYY.org. Um, she is the author of the amazing new book, um, I Ain't Marching Anymore, Dissenters, Deserters, and Objectors to America's Wars, which came out in, uh, in November. Um, we spoke with her specifically on her book um, back in uh, late October or November. So if you'd like to listen to that, please uh, check that out in our podcast episodes. Um, she also has a new piece that's out today um, referencing that um, 50 years ago, Winter Soldier exposed the Vietnam War as long, one long war crime. So, uh, Chris, uh, thank you uh, for joining us. And um, I'm happy to I'm really happy you're here to have this discussion with us. Not sure what happened. The guys and I love doing the podcast. Being able to share our experiences in the military with allies and supporters means the world to us. We can't do all the work. We need you to share an episode of ours with someone anyone whom you might think would be affected by it. Young people looking to join the military or parents advocating for one, conscientious citizens who care about the violence the U.S. wages in their name, advocates for women and people of color who understand the harsh environment the military creates for minorities and inflicts on minorities across the globe, and anyone else you think it might affect, please take a moment and share this with them. Our podcast is supported in a few different ways. First, there's Patreon, where we're blessed to have an array of wonderful supporters, helping the guys and I pay for some of the podcast's expenses. Those who contribute $10 a month or more will be mentioned right here as an honorary producer, helping keep you, our listeners, stocked with new episodes. But you don't have to contribute $10 a month to help us. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help keep us going, paying for hosting and storage fees, transcribing old and new episodes, promoting and expanding the podcast, and more I'm sure I can't think of at the moment. So let's bring out our honorary producers, and they are Will Arenz, Fahim Shirazi, James Obar, Adam Bellows, Eric Phillips, Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, Thomas Benson, Emma P., Janet Hansen, Tristan Oliver, Daniel Fleming, Michael Karen, Jason, Zach H., Ren Jacob, and the Status Quo Podcast. Your contributions are wonderfully helpful to us. Thank you so much. However, if Patreon isn't your style, you can contribute directly to us through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Fortress on a Hill. Or please check out our awesome store on Spreadshirt.com for some great Fortress merch. The link is in the show notes. And now, let's get back to the podcast.
what we can do. Well, I think I think she may be popping up now, but um, I, I do think that one of the things that you know she sort of brings to the table is a, a long view. So we have our our Vietnam veterans who who've spoken, our, our Vietnam historian who's also you know Gulf War post nine eleven veteran, and then we've got our slew of post nine eleven veteran activists. And, uh, and in a certain sense, what I think Chris's book did so well, and one reason I wanted to have her on is that she kind of bridges that, you know, bridges that gap. Um, you know, I think what I'm going to do right now is I'm actually going to bring uh, Vince Emanuele in. I'm going to introduce him. Uh, we'll knock out some of the, the first question on some of these, you know, some of these issues. And then, and then we'll bring Chris in, you know, either following or, or kind of, you know, in a discussion like we did. With Colonel Basevich and Colonel Dadis, uh, because he kind of is our first veteran, you know, besides the hosts, you know, but in terms of people who were in on the ground early, you know, Colonel Basevich was saying how he wasn't a dissenter, he probably should have been, he spent 20 more years. And I mean, I have that feeling about 10 years, you know, uh, after I essentially was, as I've said a million times, I mean, I, I was against the Iraq War at least in an unsophisticated manner in 2006, you know, at the New Year's 2007. But uh, people like Giovanni and, and Vince were were in on the grounds kind of early. Uh, they probably also feel like they weren't in early enough, but everyone's always hardest on themselves. Uh, Vince was one of our most recent guests on the podcast. Uh, he served in the United States Marine Corps from 2002 to 2006. And after his second combat deployment to Iraq, uh, he refused orders for a third deployment and joined Iraq Veterans Against the War, which was a fairly new uh, organization at that point, just a, just a couple of years old. Uh, in 2008, and this is kind of key, you know, he testified to the U.S. Congress about rules of engagement, torture and war crimes and uh, at, at kind of the post 9-11 inflection. Right. Or, or, or take. And I'm going to ask him how similar they were and all that. But, you know, something similar to what was going on with Winter Soldier, which we're commemorating today. Uh, his story has been featured in documentary films, including We Are Many and On the Bridge. He's the co-founder of uh, Park Media or Political Arts Roots Culture. Uh, community Cultural Center located in Michigan City, Indiana. Definitely check out our episode with Vince. He's always a great conversation. So, uh, Vince, I was just hoping that you could start off by giving us the personal context. I know you talked about this a lot on the last episode, but but for different listeners, you know, just you know, very briefly, kind of the, the circumscribed version of you know, service, decision to dissent, and then what that early experience of activism was like leading up to your testimony, uh, and and then I'll ask some specific things about the Vietnam sort of legacy or lack thereof. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And uh, thanks for everybody who's been on so far. I've enjoyed listening to everyone. So long story short, joined the Marine Corps uh, right after senior year of high school, came from a working class, blue collar background. Everybody in my family had served my grandfather in world war II, two purple hearts. My brother's been deployed to Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, and Libya. Uh, and my father served during Vietnam. So come from a long line of people who've served in the military was not out of the ordinary for someone like myself from a blue collar background in a Rust Belt town to uh, join the Marine Corps. And for, I believe, uh, Greg had mentioned uh, the movies of the 80s. It was a large part of my upbringing. You know, growing up in the Midwest, I was raised on all of those films uh, and took them to heart, you know. And that sort of masculinity and also the uh, glorification of militarism and violence. In any case, I find myself uh, in boot camp in 2002 in September, School of Infantry, January of 2003, <clears throat> excuse me, and then 
in Iraq during the initial invasion in 2003 in March. Um, after my first deployment, which was cut short because my mother had a brain aneurysm, so I was sent home on a Red Cross message, I started to become a little more politicized. Um, was reading books. My friends were coming home from their first year at university. So, you know, a lot of them taking uh, courses in the humanities and so forth and becoming politicized on campus. It started to help me be become a little more politicized. And then went back to 29 Palms, California, where I was stationed with the 1st Battalion, 7th Marines, Alpha Company, 3rd Platoon, and got ready for a second deployment to Iraq in August of 2004 until April of 2005. Uh, that particular deployment was um, in Al-Qaim, Iraq, in Western Iraq, right on the Syrian border, uh, just south, well, right up against the Euphrates River. It was during a particularly violent uh, period of the war, and it was really the Wild West. I know Re Henry was there a couple years after I was there, and we talked about this during the last podcast. And it was a horrific experience. I mean, the things that the uh, my fellow Marines uh, were participating in and doing um, were the very worst things you could possibly imagine. So, you know, shooting and killing innocent civilians at checkpoints and during house raids and beating up and torturing and sometimes killing uh, prisoners, um, taking pictures with dead bodies, mutilating dead bodies. Uh, so on and so forth. And these were all the things that I eventually uh, went on to testify about, uh, both during the Winter Soldier hearings in Silver Springs, Maryland, but then again after that uh, to Congress when we... So I think we, uh, I think we lost <laughs> Vince briefly, and uh, that's okay. You know, everybody has a, a plan until it... Uh, until it kind of gets going. Uh, Giovanni, what was your, and we'll introduce you here in a bit, um, what was your role in Iraq Veterans? Vince is back. Oh, great, great. So we'll uh, we'll Sorry with, about that. We'll I, I, Vince I do not know Because what I, I want to ask Vince is, you know, I'm going to do the lead-in. I'm going to ask Vince about the extent to which, you know, the 2008, you know, Winter Soldier was, you know, informed by uh, studied, you know, as, as part of the legacy and how it may have been similar and different. And I was looking at a contemporary at the time, June 2008 article in the American Prospect. And it had this to say about the hearings that, you know, Vince eventually was involved in and, and testifying before Congress after. It said, uh, Iraq veterans against the war. Uh, this is. the occupation and uh, said that IVAW is inspired by the Winter Soldier Tribunal held in 1971 by Vietnam War veterans. And then it gives some background on that. And so, uh, Vince, if you were able to hear any of that, basically what I'm at, I'm quoting this article that describes, you know, IVAW's campaign in 2008 as basically growing directly out of being inspired by Winter Soldier. And, and I'm just interested in what, what it was like, you know, in, in the movement at that time as part of the organization and uh, and taking part in it, you was, you know, to what extent was this post 9-11 version something similar? And to what extent was it motivated or informed by that earlier era? Uh, from what I can remember, it was very informed by that era. And both, to, you know, 
on a positive and a negative side. So one of the things I'll say, and I think we should look back at the history critically, you know, when I got to Silver Springs, Maryland, I remember people coming up to me and being like, we, this is going to change the course of the war. Uh, events like this could potentially end the war. And in hindsight, I just remember think, I, you know, I'm thinking to myself, we were very, very naive. Um, and I think part of the problem was that we were trying to replicate actions. In other words, I'm proud to have participated in it, and I'm glad we did. However, I think it's really important to recognize that we did not have a sophisticated view of organizing back then. And it was reflected, I think, in continuing to sort of replicate the actions from the Vietnam era. That was seen again, I believe, in 2012, 2013, during the, the NATO protests, of which I participated as well in returning our medals. Um, those things are fine, and I'm, I'm, again, glad to have participated in them. But I do think um, that we had a maybe inflated view of what these sort of public symbolic actions were going to produce. Um, so what kind of results did we expect to achieve from holding such events? It was a historical event, just like the original Winter Soldier hearings were a historical event. Um, but in terms of changing the course of the war or having an impact on policy, uh, it did not do those things. And I think for reasons that people mentioned earlier, I think uh, Andrew Basevich made a great point that it was in a context in which people weren't nearly as organized as they were during the Vietnam era. So you can't just look, I think, at the anti-war movement during the Bush years and sort of criticize it in a vacuum. The reality is left-wing progressive liberal movements uh, were not nearly uh, as sophisticated, organized, robust, vibrant, or large uh, as they were 40, 30 years prior. So I might be more of a critical take, but I think it's important to look back at that history and sort of ask, what would we do differently today? Um, how would we organize events? What kind of events would we organize and where do we think our power is? Uh, and how would we wield that power as an anti-war movement. I think largely the anti-war movement has been stuck in this cycle of doing a lot, mo trying to mobilize people who already agree with us, number one, uh, which is a dwindling number of people in terms of the people you can actually pull from. Uh, and I think doing symbolic actions over and over and over again um, without you know, getting much in terms of results uh, there's a limited time and I think patience for that uh, for most people, including those who are involved. I want to build on that just for a second um, and, and ask, you know, for some personal and then broader just observational perspectives on the public reception uh, in a comparative framework. But, you know, I'm interested in knowing what it was like at the time. Uh, that means, you know, folks you ran into, people who were there, uh, also media and political. So, this is interesting to me because so on the political side in 1971, you know, even just vague research shows that, you know, the Nixon administration was uh, was concerned about the anti-war movement. Obviously, uh, there were memos, you know, about, you know, the you know, the plan to counteract Vietnam veterans against the war uh, that Charles Colson has talked about. Uh, there were other memos saying, you know, the problem with VVAW is that several of their regional coordinators are former Kennedy supporters and that. Bobby Kennedy. And that, that makes me laugh a little bit because I think about John Kerry in 2004, which is like the same year that IVW is being formed. And of course, the media blackout was real. 
you know, uh, some local Detroit papers covered it, Pacifica Radio, which also covered the 2008 event, I believe. But mainstream media, uh, especially the East Coast papers, pretty much refused to cover the 71 hearings. Uh, there was a New York Times story a week later, and a local field reporter for the Times, Jerry Flint, said, uh, with disinterest, basically, he said, well, talking about the atrocities, he said, this stuff happens in all wars, quote, end quote. Um, and I've read some stuff about 2008, even though I wasn't involved. Uh, and the media coverage does still seem to have been somewhat lacking. And you talked about that as potentially a strategy issue to some extent, but but it's probably more. So if you could kind of like, you know, taking that past and maybe just framing it in, what did you experience and what did the movement experience in terms of public reception uh, across those different frameworks? Uh, and even back then, we didn't have the kind of, uh, fast-paced day-to-day news media that we have today, but it's true that it was a minor blip on the map. I mean, when I came home, when I drove back from Silver Springs, Maryland to Northwest Indiana, where I lived at the time and where I still live today, maybe one out of every 1,000 residents in Northwest Indiana heard about this event. They were people who had already been engaged with the anti-war movement. So, you know, one of the reasons why I've enjoyed live here in Northwest Indiana and this is a broader point about movement politics, and that is uh, because very much sort of I think where most of the country is coming from, and I think sometimes um, we get a warped view, particularly people who live maybe on the West Coast or live in New York or D.C. or Boston or Seattle or Oregon or, you know, the Bay Area or wherever. Uh, that we are maybe more important than we think we are. And I think this is particularly true for people who spend all of their time surrounded by people who agree with them. Uh, So if all of your friends are also people who identify as being in the anti-war movement, or if all your friends are also people who identify as progressives or leftists or whatever the case may be, that's a very small percentage of the total population in this country. Um, so, you know, one of the benefits of residing in Northwest Indiana is that no matter how many anti-war protests I went to, 300, 400,000 people, huge symbolic action, civil disobedience, uh, all kinds of things, nonviolent direct actions, I would always come home and, you know, go back to working at the bar and uh, realize that the vast majority of people in middle America had no idea what we were doing, had a slight idea of what we were doing. Or, you know, we have to remember that back in 2008, there was still the sort of rhetoric uh, from the right that you were a traitor, uh, that you were unpatriotic, uh, that you were a terrorist sympathizer if you didn't, uh, quote unquote, you know, support the troops, which de facto meant supporting the wars. Um, So the country was, you know, again, for all the talk of us being so divided today, the, the, the country has always been divided and it was very divided back then. So uh, my last major question uh, is a, a bit more in similarities and differences and, you know, dare I say, dot, 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 gulp with a, a real historian on the line here in Greg, you know, lessons from Winter Soldier 71 and also 08 that you've seen, um, you know, and, and you've mentioned on the last podcast and on this one, this idea of like strategies of organizing and, and, and plans and, and you know, um, philosophies of change. And so I guess what I'm interested in really is what are the implications out of your experience out of Winter Soldier 08 uh, and everything that followed and preceded that for successful anti-war and especially anti-war veteran organizing moving forward? You know, like 
what are the implications that you saw from that and maybe some some things that could be taken from it moving forward? Ooh, that's a, the, yeah, the best question to ask. So thanks for that one, uh, Danny. And it's also a, a long response. So I'll give it as short as I can. And I wrote down several things as, as y'all were having your discussion before, because people brought up some good points. Again, I would say context matters. Um, there is more organizing opportunities, I think today than there were 12 years ago, not around specifically the anti-war movement because largely the anti-war movement doesn't really exist today. So when we're talking of an, if we're speaking of an anti-war movement, I ask people, who are we speaking about? What organizations, how many members do they have? How many chapters do they have? What kind of active campaigns are they engaged in? Um, you know, what's the long-term strategy? What are the short-term objectives to achieve that strategy? And getting people to move away from mobilizing and think about deep organizing. And by that, I mean spending most of our time, mobilizers and activists spend most of their time speaking with people who agree with us. Organizers spend most of their time speaking with people who are not on the same page with us. That doesn't mean the far-right boogaloos or the proud boys. That means the overwhelming majority of Americans who remain on the sidelines, uh, people who might agree with us through opinion polls and so forth, but who are not organized. They're not members of organizations. Uh, they are not accountable to a collective body of people, and they're not actively engaged uh, in campaigns and so forth. And I think there's opportunities. People mentioned it before. Black Lives Matter, there's opportunities to make connections uh, with movements. When we were in Ferguson back in 2014, 2015, with a group of activists from Northwest Indiana who traveled down uh, after Mike Brown was murdered, we, were, we saw people with Palestinian flags in the streets on Florescent Avenue. You know, there was a sense of international solidarity then, and it's even stronger today. The, the conversation around defunding, though, I think is complex. Uh, there's obviously much more to do um, in, the, in the realm of militarism. There's much more money and resources to play with there than police departments have. So I think that's an opportunity. I think we have to remember during the primaries, the Democratic primaries, that Bernie Sanders received more donations from active duty service personnel than every other Democratic candidate combined. Uh, so I'll say that again. You know, Bernie Sanders received a self-proclaimed Democratic socialist, received more donations from active duty service members than every other Democratic candidate combined. Uh, to me, that does not mean uh, that you know, the military is overwhelmingly democratic socialists. Uh, it just means that there's an opportunity there. And we have to organize veterans now, I think, in a deep way, not just on bases where they live and so forth, you know, not on bases where they're stationed, but where they live in their communities, the other issues that matter to veterans as well, beyond those uh, which take place within the structure of the military. Uh, because we face a serious challenge, and that is a growing white supremacist, white power movement in the United States that's been organizing for many, many decades. We talked about this at your last podcast, Danny. I, I highly recommend that people read the historian Kathleen Ballou's book, Bring the War Home, uh, about the growth of the white power movement and the changes that it, and the, the different shapes that it takes following Vietnam. And we saw, I think, a real, the real threat that that movement poses uh, on January 6th and on numerous occasions throughout the last four years. And as we've seen in the reporting following January 6th, I think one out of five to one out of four people who have been arrested at the Capitol building following January 6th were veterans. Uh, so we have this battle within the veterans community. You know, there's sections of the veterans community, and this is historically true going all the way back to the Civil War that find themselves in extreme right movements like the Ku Klux Klan or like the modern day versions of those organizations. 
And on the other side, you know, veterans who come home and organize within the Communist Party, organize within the IWW, organize in labor unions, veterans playing key roles in the civil rights organizations like SNCC uh, or in the Black Power Movement, like the Black Panthers. So this conflicted history, we're still fighting over it. And I think there's a lot of opportunities. But I do think we have to ask ourselves what shape the, the anti-war movement takes today, what kind of rebuilding process we have to go through. What are the lessons that we have to learn from the 60s and from the, you know, Bush era, the Obama era, and not to just glorify all of these moments, but to really think critically about them. What can we learn? What should we ditch? Uh, and how can we move forward with a better, more thoughtful movement that's more sophisticated and, and more powerful? Sorry, I know that was a long no, answer. No, it, no, it's it. I think that when I when I give a question like that, I mean, there's really no short answer to it. And I think that as we transition, you know, over to Giovanni, I think he's probably going to have his own views on the, some of this same stuff. And I think that what we'll be talking about partly after, you know, Kagan asked him some of his own experience in the lead up to tell a bit of his story and bio, I have a feeling we'll be chewing over a lot of these same things. And that's one of the great things about having both you and Giovanni on. Uh, I, before I transition over there and, and feel free to stay on if you can, if you're available and, and hop in uh, as we close out, I'm not sure if Chris will be able to uh, join us. There's, you know, there's always text up, but you mentioned that Bernie, you know, gets these, this surprising support or what seemingly is surprising support from, from veterans and, and military members. And I think that I'm not known for my breezy optimism, certainly anyone who's read my stuff, but in terms of opportunities, it's interesting too, when you talk about alliances, uh, cross-partisan even to a certain extent, Ron Paul got an enormous amount of support in 08, maybe 12, that, you know, definitely 08 in, on the Republican side. So isn't that interesting in terms of like our leadership in the establishment parties not reflecting, right? Not, you know, not being representative of necessarily the grassroots. I mean, even that applies in the military because in it, you know, you have this sort of, you know, vaguely anti-interventionist or strongly in some cases, Ron Paul getting support within the military and veteran community. And then you have Bernie and like that alliance. I mean, it's, it, look, it's complicated. It's not as simple as like, let's just get together and change the world, you know, libertarians and progressives. But I think that's interesting. So um, with that, uh, do we want to go uh, Kagan to introduce Giovanni and then continue this conversation or, uh, or, or go straight into Chris Henry? Um, I'm, I'm not sure if our connection has cleaned up enough for uh, okay for Chris to join in. So let's uh, let's uh, let's chat with Giovanni first. Yeah, let's continue this conversation. And Giovanni's been on for a, a long time and just been a great addition in the conversation. So Kagan, take it away. Thanks, Giovanni, uh, for coming on again. We always appreciate having you. Um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about your background. I know that you joined in '93. You spent some time in the Balkans. Um, you worked as like a training uh, specialist for combat medics and uh, afterwards for Department of the Army. And then also learning about base in 2013 and becoming the staff or the member coordinator for the entire organization in 2015. And I just wanted to ask you, like, you since you have like a really interesting perspective from a different from you know danny henry and i as being like a pre 9-11 guy so you have like a really interesting perspective there and then coming through everything and then uh your you know what what was your kind of journey to come to be more activist and to join ivaw and about face yeah so um uh, thank you guys for having me again um, join the conversation. 
So, yeah, so um, a political journey. Uh, I was a military kid, right? So my dad was in the military. He did 20, 20 something years in the in the military. As a matter of fact, when I joined the military, he was still in the military as well. So we're in the military at the same time in the army. Um, so, and it was interesting about my dad is that also helped shape my political views. Uh, my dad is is Dominican, Dominican Republic. My mother's Puerto Rican. So I got this two cultures, right? They're very politicized uh, cultures, right? Uh, Puerto Rico being uh, a colony of the United States and and Dominican Republic being a kind of like a neo-colony or a vassal of the United States, right? Um, there's a huge veteran population in, in Puerto Rico. I mean, the Vietnam uh, War, about 48,000 uh, Puerto Rican men were were uh, were recruited, were were uh, conscripted to go to Vietnam. That's not a population of a one at the time was like one million uh, two hundred male population. Um, so there was a huge chunk of people that that were conscripted to the Vietnam War. So there's a lot of uh, 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 veterans in Puerto Rico. Um, and the what I saw there growing up in Puerto Rico, right? There were like these two avenues, just like Vince was talking about, or um about you know the bernie sanders and you know and, and ron paul um in puerto rico the context there is that that some of these veterans that came back from vietnam they became involved into the independence movement into the puerto rican independence movement um others just became just became real diehard pro-staters you know um pro-statehood you know and you know so you, you still have these challenges today uh from my father's side my father lived through a, uh, a U.S. invasion in 1965, where the uh, where uh, um, President Johnson ordered the invasion of the Dominican Republic during, during a failed revolution. There, uh, 42,000 U.S. soldiers landed in the Dominican Republic. But that was a young boy at the time, so it pretty much shaped his view as well. But nonetheless, he still joined the military. But I grew up also listening to the stories of the U.S. occupation of the Dominican Republic in 1965 and, and soldiers and the bombings and so forth, right? So so I get this perspective also from people that had um, at, that had experience uh, a U.S. military intervention from the other side, from the receiving end, you know? Um, so I've had that experience. That's also shaped my view of war. So when I was living in, in the military base in, in, the, uh, in Virginia, uh, also experiencing the how the Panama War uh, played out. Uh, there was a lot of deployment. Can you guys hear me? I don't see anybody here. So, so there was a deployment. Okay. So there was a deployment uh, from the base I was living in, uh, Fort Eustis, um, of people going to Panama. Right? Um, they went to Panama. You know. And, and I was a kid then, and they came back from Panama, and 18 months later, they went to the Gulf War, right? So they all left. So I, so that pretty much impacted me as well, seeing this this deployment in real, you know, real world happening. And then the stories they came back with, and the pictures they came back with, you know, of of you know, uh, dead Panamanians and dead Iraqis, and and kids were passing around in school, like like you know, like it was trading cards, you know. So all that, you know, pretty much that kind of uh, it was disturbing for me. But at the same time, um, it, it gave me a, a consciousness of of what are American wars and what they're about, you know, of not believing the stories, you know. Uh, but nonetheless, I also joined the military right after high school because that's what military kids do, you know. They join the military just like their fathers did. Um, so I joined the military in '93, 
uh, by 90, by 90, late 95, 96, you know, I found myself in the Falcons, right? Uh, doing the NATO intervention in, in, in the former Yugoslavia, which was NATO's first uh, military uh, uh, intervention, you know, since it was created um, and pretty much decimated the country with the bombings, you know, and they the, the intervened in the civil war. Uh, the country, you know, was bombed, and then we were part of the, the NATO troops there uh, trying to implement the uh, what was called I-4, uh, implementation force, right? Uh, so just like like uh, like Colonel Basevic, when I left, I had no idea the, of the context of what was happening in Yugoslavia. I was just there. Um, so I had no idea of the politics involved, you know, why was, why was the civil war happening in, in this country that pretty much up to that point, I didn't know existed. Uh, well, I didn't know it existed because because of the car Yugo, the Yugo car, but I didn't really know too much about it. I wasn't after later that I started to read about the Yugoslav, con Yugoslav conflict and by, by also started learning about the Panamanian concept, it pretty much shaped my view a lot. Um, so when I left the military, so when I was, uh, when, when I was, when the invasion happened in Iraq in, in 2003, I was, I was in a platform. I was a, uh, an instructor for, for Winsick, you know, um, which is, used to be called the School of the Americas. Um, so I recall that when this whole, when this whole, um, you know, the buildup to the Iraq war, you know, went from, from invading Afghanistan to talking about invading Iraq, like, like in a heartbeat, you know, it didn't sit well with me. It didn't sit well with me right there. You know, it was off. The narrative was off. You know, it just didn't add up. And I was seeing how how people in in my unit how they were just ecstatic about it. You know, it was like this like like we went like we went to 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 a Super Bowl or something. You know, they were just so pumped up about invading Iraq. You know, um, and I was I remember I was disturbed with that. And I recall that right there and then I made a choice that that I was going to leave the military, you know, that wasn't, you know, I'm not going to participate in this, you know, at that point I had, I think I had a, um, either 10 years or 11 years in the military back then, I, I recall right now. Um, so I didn't, I refused to go to the Iraq war. Uh, luckily that I wasn't put in, I wasn't put in a position where I had to make the choice of either going or deserting or whatnot. Uh, but I already made up my mind that I was not going to participate in that war. And my ETS came, came earlier, you know, so I ETS out of the military. Uh, I left, I had like two kids and uh, uh, I didn't have a plan when I left the military. So that, like the first three years was kind of, was kind of very kind of shaky uh, in my marriage and all that, you know, because, you know, it was, you know, it was just really, you know, I had a livelihood in the military. Now you pretty much abruptly cut it off. But which brings me to Iraq veterans against the war. Uh, I joined Iraq veterans against the war in um, 13. And uh, um, I remember, I recall, find this community where veterans were of like mind, you know, kind of like what Vince was talking about, you know, being around people that already agree with you because what was before that was that, you know, I was, I was in Fort Benning, Georgia, which is, it's a huge, and that's when I got out from it, which is a huge veteran community. Um, I couldn't relate to none of the veterans around me. I mean, it was just, I was, I was just so disgusted by them, you know, and, 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 and either they were pro-war, Pro Iraq War, you know, yeah, let's, you know, and using all these negative, all these racialized, you know, uh, slurs against Iraqis, right? Or they were hyped up because they were about to get, you know, because of deployment, because of the good money, you know, I get to pay, I get to buy a bow, I get to, you know, uh, 
know, buy another house and, and yada, 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 yada. So I was kind of disgusted by all that. So I remember when I found yeah. uh, Iraq Veterans Against the War, I, already, I was already in Texas by then. You know, I found this community of, of, of veterans that was critical of, of the Iraq War, that was critical of the Afghanistan War. I remember the first actual member that I met, um, one of the first members that I met was, uh, his name was Jacob George. He was a, a veteran of the of the, uh, the Afghanistan War. I think he deployed like two or three times to Afghanistan. And I, and I recall seeing him, you know, listening to his testimony, it was very impact, impactful to, to me. Um, so yeah, so fast forward, uh, just like Danny said, I'm, I'm the member coordinator of About Face now. Um, so when people join, I, uh, you know, I make the first contact, uh, first con contact you by email, then I follow up with a call and I have this one-on-one -on -one conversation with people and, and having that job, right. You know, doing that, you know, also, you know, I get a chance, the opportunity to hear what veterans really have to say about these wars and how their, their military services and how they feel about it. Uh, the ones that join about face um you know and for the for many of them it's the first time that they actually open up about their true feelings about the military to another veteran um so it becomes kind of uh, i become kind of a uh, um you know a safe space for them uh so they can open up towards me and um yeah and and i helped them transition into you know being more involved members in uh in about face How do you think we can, like, I know Vince talked about this, and it's something that we kind of danced around a lot the whole time, but I mean, the thing that, as you said, it is great. It is great to be in a space where you have the ability to, like, speak your truth and not feel weird about it, and I know that we can do that. Like, for me in the military, I was so grateful to have two or three people that I could talk about what we were doing. And I could be like, this is fucked up, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then we could actually have a discussion and like it would kind of, it, it wouldn't make me feel better about it, but at least I would know like I'm not the only person feeling this way. And I, while I do, I, I'm grateful that we have these spaces where we can be ourselves. The, the challenge, as Vince said, is that we have to figure out how to broaden the the tents you know we have to bring the other folks in or like co collaborate with those other folks and what what do you feel like what do you see from the organization and what do you feel like is the next steps going forward for that um i don't really have the answer to that um uh, i want to add to some of the critique that uh the vince said earlier i think uh, also this the digital platform that we've gotten accustomed to also hampers a lot of uh, organizing in the ground uh, too many, too many people are just so comfortable. Um, it's easy. It's easy to 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 argue on 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 social media. It's easy to um, you know send those uh, petitions, and it's easy to uh, send those events. You know, here in Texas, we we do a lot of events. You know, we we've been really active here in Texas with the uh, our face members here, and we all do a lot of like those Facebook. Um, uh facebook uh event pages you know and and we're going to hold something together you know and there's about 60 70 people you know say maybe or they're going you know to the event and then the event happens and it's like 15 people show up you know so 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 that's kind of challenging you know and and you know you'll think that 
with social media, you'll be able to to reach a broader audience and stuff like that. But it's not really, it's not always the case, you know. Um, I guess you know, I get it. People are busy. You know, people. You know, um, you know, we live in a in a very hyper individualized uh, society where you know where you know where individualism is key. You know, uh, you know, solidarity takes a little bit more effort. Um, and yeah, and people are just so far removed from these wars. I mean. Being like being a new member coordinator, right? I can recall that when last year, when when Trump assassinated General Sulaimani, the running general, right? We had a spike in membership, right? We had a, a spike of people ap applying, you know, in, in like in the next couple of months because everybody thought they were going to go to war, you know. So there was a lot of veterans, a lot of active duty veterans as well. They were they were uh, applying, and then it kind of mellowed out a little bit um, when. When Trump announced that, that he was going to mobilize active duty soldiers and 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 uh, National Guard soldiers, right, to quell the uh, the George Floyd protests, right, uh, there was another spike of of members. I mean, I think in one day, in one day, I had like like a hundred applications in one day. You know, uh, of a lot of them were National Guard people, and a lot of them, you know, some people were active duty people and stuff like that. Um, you know, and then it kind of closed down again. It seems like when there's a moment of crisis, when there's a moment where you know people are like, "Oh snap!" You know, something's going to happen. There, uh, there seems to be an interest in anti-war. Uh, you know, at least, at least being, at least finding an avenue of anti-war. But when people go back to comfort levels, right, it kind of closed down again. Um, also, you know, when Vince was deployed in the early years of Iraq, you know, there were boots on the ground. You know, uh, now people are just so far removed. From from the from the battlefield, you know. Now you're fighting with proxy with proxy militaries or proxy militias with drones. You know, you're you're with proxy countries. You know, right now you have you have uh, this. There's um, you know the hybrid warfare. You know, right now you know there's this li literally literally a war against a country in South America, Venezuela, right? Which according to according to uh, estimations, right, has killed uh, forty thousand people in one year just because of sanctions regimes, right? And right now you're in, in you know but there's no boots on the ground you know because there's no boots on the ground people don't care you know but it's still taking people's lives you know um so that that's one of the challenges that all this trick that that that, that are being played against you know and the, the information warfare and the community and 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 the fact that you're not you're not feeling something like you know uh you're not you know, have skin in the game, you know, um, gives you the opportunity to just look away. I mean, we, we did a film, I did a film screening here with uh, um, another another member uh, of About Face, an early member of Rapids Against the War, Ross Caputi. He put a film together uh, called Fear Not the Path of, of, Fear Not the Path of Fear, Fear Not the Path of Truth, I think that's what it was called, right? It was based about his experience in the, in the, in the assault in Fallujah, the second, second assault in Fallujah. So I screened that film, at a community college here. And the people that were there, the students that were there, they were like in their early 20s, you know, and whatnot. And after we did the, after we, we did the, um, the film, the end of the film, we had like a Q&A, a discussion and whatnot. And I was just surprised how, how Iraq was just, it's just a vague memory for them, you know. Uh, when they when the invasion happened, they were probably like in, like six years old or something like that. It was just such a vague memory for them that you know they couldn't really articulate what happened. You know, it was something it was something fresh and new for them. You know, um, so yeah. So you know, I think I think uh, Gore Vidal talked about United States of Amnesia. 
I think that's what's I think I think that's what's happening. You know, we have such short memories that makes things hard. It makes you know hard for for, for persistent <coughs> organizing, and people just keep their eyes on the goal. <coughs> Something I've been thinking about is like, so I mean, in of if you i don't know how many of you guys have like dug into digital marketing these these days but you know everything is driven by algorithms right that's how everything that pops up on your phone comes up is based on the things that you say that you like and so the hard thing for marketing because there is such a huge um there's so much stuff out there it's so hard to get everything so the idea is you know there are ways that you can trick the algorithm to be on your side to get your advertisement and your stuff in there and i'm thinking that's what we need to be doing like we need to be finding ways for our organizations to be using the algorithms to our advantage just the way that anybody who's trying to sell a product is trying to do and i know like a lot of us are not super pro capitalism but like in today's market i think that that's going to really help us is if we find a way to utilize these tools that are being used by everything by everybody else and like that's how that's what informs people's worldview so if we get it in front of people's faces then people will start to pay attention more but yeah it's it's so hard to do and it's it's hard when people don't have that memory of you know oh shit like this was a big thing that happened and we all like i think all of us remember watching you know our invasion in 2003 and you know just watching everything on tv unfold and like there just hasn't been anything close to that since then and you know yeah we just have to find a way to get get it in front of people's faces and to show to connect it to how it matters to them i mean a lot of our members today coming in today in about face they haven't they haven't really they haven't deployed anywhere uh, and right. that just tells you how far removed uh, this whole concept of boots on the ground you know has gone you know they haven't deployed um as compared to the early IVAW members, where all of them pretty much were combat vets, you know, I'm not, I'm not here trying, you know, try, you know, deployment versus not, you know, non-deployed like, like, like Danny talked about earlier. I mean, that's irrelevant to me. But just the fact that, just point out the fact that, that it just been so effective. I think it started with Obama, with, with, with this, with this, you know, with pulling back, you know, hard power out, you know, and increasing, because uh, you increase the, the special operations. Uh, uh divisions right so now they're doing a lot of the fighting what they're doing is they're doing a lot of the training for local militias or local militaries and whatnot so they're the ones actually putting skin in the game right so you have uh you know you have all these these wars by proxy and and the american and and, and joe and jane are not having to to you know to to feel a brunt of that you know but uh, um yeah i think i mean i think that's interesting as well Speaking as somebody as one of those folks, like as somebody who worked with special operations with uh, NSA, CIA, special forces, you know, it's um, like, yeah, I mean, the the thing is that that's always been on my mind, too. It's like the fact that I never deployed, but like I dealt with a lot of death and a lot of combat from, you know, six, seven thousand miles away. And. And something when you look into RCS, you know, you remote combat stress is that you see that like, you know, it's it's like on deployment, you have the whole like pre-deployment, deployment, post-deployment, post like you have a cycle, but like for those of us who, you know, it's our job, like we're just, we're just at this level the entire time, like the entire time that you're at the duty station, the entire time you're doing the job and you don't have that like downtime, that's that recycling and it's good for the for the military and it's good for the public because everything is behind closed doors 
and oh, it's not our people on the ground, it's not us focusing. But like for those of us who do bear the brunt of the work, and especially like the drone operators, the drones, the sensor operators and the pilots, like they, you know, it's just something that people don't really understand. Like this is still war and it still affects us because we're human beings. You know, um, I think that that's a really important point that Giovanni and Kagan both raised about the changing nature of, of the wars. When, when we talk about methods to sort of squelch military dissent or make it invisible, uh, well, the draft was a big part of that. But I wonder if there's something almost more nefarious about turning war itself invisible, uh, this abstraction that, that Giovanni talked about. And when you go tech savvy, when you go proxy, uh, when you go commando raids that are so classified, right? Or, or you or you you blur the line between contractor, soldier, intelligence operative, and kind of foreign forces, right? That's another challenge that you know that wasn't even really on the radar, at least I don't think, to the same extent for someone like you know Andrew Basevich, right? Um, and that and that's interesting. Will will the next Winter soldier hearings, if they happen, include private security outfits. I mean, probably not in a certain sense, but it but it bears asking when the casualties are not dissimilar in Afghanistan. Uh, but I, but I will say this: so you know, uh, as ever, we're over, right? That's 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 what we do. Uh, it's our trademark. But you know, in the interest of you know, sort of time and uh, letting people get to their next thing, I think here's what we're going to do: is um, we're just. Final thoughts, one minute close out from everybody. You know, I'll, I'll drop something very quick and then I'm thinking Giovanni can kind of give his last thoughts. If you need to go a little longer, Giovanni, you know, to kind of close out your piece, that's good. Um, Greg will hop in, uh, Vince, Kagan, and then, you know, we'll let, we'll let Henry drop the mic, a uh, literal figurative, since he's the brains of the operation. Uh, one of the things that kind of jumped to me is I was listening to everybody. And I think the strength tonight was the panel, which is why in many cases, the co-hosts who often do too much of the talking. Well, one of them more than others. Uh, we kind of like let that happen. And some of that conversation is so great because of the different perspectives, intergenerational, who's a scholar, who's a scholar soldier, who's an activist uh, is really valuable. Chris Lombardi wasn't able to come on and talk about her book, her research in, you know, why exactly uh, there has been this long tradition, what the challenges have been, what the gains have been. But, but I, I as sort of the geeky historian, you know, I want to speak a little bit to that long legacy, tradition, maybe even obligation of military and veteran dissenters, which really starts with the American Revolution. I mean, frankly, there have always been dissenters, which I talk a little bit about in my book, Patriotic Dissent. But I think one of the things that jumped out about today's discussion, especially in the later half uh, with Vince and Giovanni and really across the board is it's important to commemorate things like the Winter Soldier hearings of 71. It is crazy that it was 50 years ago, despite the lingering just power and relevance that Greg was talking about of, of this contested Vietnam War. Uh, but it's also important to, you know, learn, adapt, uh, and stay active. You know, it's it's more than just making a mark on the calendar that someone will 50 years from 2008 commemorate what, what Vince was part of. And that should happen. But I think one of the things he constantly raises and that so many people have is, well, what are we going to do about it? You know, because the truth is, Look, I mean, a note on sort of like terminology, etymology, where does winter soldier come from? I don't think anyone mentioned it. Where does the, the term come from? It's, you know, it's derived as a contrast to Thomas Paine, who described the summer soldier 
you know, in his first, you know, American crisis paper. So that's December 1776. So look, I'll just argue as I have before, we're in one of those now, an American crisis. We've been in them before, but uh, we're in the 20th year of a largely unchallenged, at least successfully, uh, ongoing war with no end in sight, utterly hopeless. And this is 244 years and two months, right, from Thomas Paine's pamphlet. So I just want to keep that in mind. And so commemorate uh, and move forward. And uh, with that, Giovanni, last thoughts from you. Yeah, I want to say thank you guys uh, for inviting me uh, for this very important uh, discussion. Um, you know, thank you uh, for the job that you guys do. Very good. You know, put the voice out there. Put the uh, there's not a lot of platform for us uh, dissenters, you know, to to have. You know, and I'm grateful that that at least fortunes on the hill exist for that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's. It's mind-boggling for me being in a situation where you have you're in 20, 20 years warfare, right? Continuous warfare in about what in about thirteen countries, you know, um, you know, actively bombing seven countries, and no one is talking about it, you know. <laughs> so it's mind-boggling to me, you know. Um, no one cares, you know. No one talks about it. Uh, but you know, you know, I'm looking forward to a change in that. I'm looking forward to to a dismantling of, of this uh, this uh, uh, war policy, this you know this you know this war regime that, that we seem to have, you know, both parties, you know, uh, yeah, that's it. <clears throat> Am I up, Danny? Yep, you're up. All right. Uh, so as a Vietnam uh, War historian, I'll come back to the actual historical event itself and uh, just quote to you one of the sergeants from the 1st Marine Division that testified in January of 1971 at the Winter Soldier hearings. And uh, in the conversation, he said, we were conditioned to believe that this was this was all good for the nation. This was good for the country and anything we did was OK. And I, I think that is ultimately the challenge here is, is how do we contest this conditioning? How do we continue to contest the militarization of American foreign policy and, and continue to contest the what I would argue and, and others have the illiberal practices that support a supposed liberal world order? And I, I think, you know, it's conversations like this that help us do that. And so I applaud um, everybody that's associated um, not just with this conversation here tonight, but but also Fortress on a Hill. And I think the challenge then becomes for the listeners, not just to stop the conversation um, at the end of this uh, end of this evening, but to, to continue it in communities across the nation, um, because ultimately that's what um, our predecessors wanted to have happen. They didn't want the conversation um, to end at those winter soldier hearings. They wanted it to continue across the nation um, after those three days were done in the, um, the end of January, beginning of February in Detroit in 1971. Thanks very much for that, Greg. And thanks for coming on and staying on and uh, providing so much context. Uh, Vince, final thoughts? Yeah, I think you know what I'm going to say, and that is we've got to organize, organize, organize. Danny said it earlier, we're in a moment of crisis in the country. The people that people will look to, Thomas Paine, I'm, I'm very glad that Danny brought him up. Uh, I don't care if it's him. I don't care if it's Karl Marx, Ella Baker, 
whoever Stokely Carmichael, whoever your hero is, they were not just writing pamphlets and they were not just writing books or uh, memos. They were on the ground active participants in whatever it was they were doing. And that goes from Marx to Thomas Paine to Ella Baker to Malcolm X to whoever else you want to cite. We have to have more people organizing. Like we have to organize in our churches, in our workplaces, in our communities, on campus, in schools, across the country. That's the only thing that's going to stop future wars. And that's by us having more political power. The opinion polls are with us. It doesn't matter if you poll veterans or conservatives or liberals or progressives. There is not an appetite in this country for protracted war. Uh, so the question is, how do we organize and mobilize those who already agree with us, which is the majority of the country? For me, that gets back to organizing. So it's not so much about getting the info out. Yes, like we have to get information out there. But again, poll after poll shows from veterans to Republicans to Democrats, the majority of Americans want troops out of Afghanistan. So why are they not out of Afghanistan? Because the majority of Americans are not organized. So until we get organized, you know, none of this, in my opinion, is going to change. Uh, these wars will continue. The special forces operations will continue because we don't have any political power. So until we have political power, uh, I'm afraid that, you know, we'll probably be having the same conversation over and over again. The good thing is that there are millions of people in the country who are organizing. So my like parting words is what they always are, which is people have to get active Got to get off the couch. It's more difficult under the pandemic, sure, but tweets and memes and, you know, pithy statements and all the rest are not going to uh, change U.S. militarism. The only thing that will do that is organized political power. Thanks so much, Vince. And uh, I'm always glad that you bring that perspective that there's a move forward element to this. Um, I love history. I'll read it all day, but, you know, there, are, there may not be direct lessons, and if we try to take them, they're usually the wrong ones, but there's certainly like a motivating factor and, you know, taking that context and some application. So with that, uh, my co-host, Kagan, and, and I just want to thank, first of all, all the guests that are still on. This has been great. And Kagan, take it away. Um, thanks, everyone, for coming on. So glad to have you guys. Um, sorry that we didn't get to everybody. Uh, that we wanted, but you know, sometimes things happen. Um, I, I, I mean, I agree with Vince a lot. <laughs> uh, it's yeah, we have to figure out ways to organize. We have to find ways to inject the conversation into everyday life. You know, finding ways to uh, like something that my wife asked. You know, she is a little bit younger than me, and. You know, so she wasn't really like involved in any of this until I started bringing it up more <laughs> when we first met. And I think that that's really typical for a lot of you know people in my generation for millennials. You know, it's just that a lot of us don't, especially the folks who didn't have anybody around who was a part of it. They just it's not a part of their life, so they don't think about it. But you know, I just I try to remind everybody that foreign policy is domestic policy. You know, everything that we do overseas comes here. And everything that we want to do, we start doing it overseas because it doesn't affect Americans and therefore we don't care about it. But or we bring people together and we we decide, you know, when is enough. And we call out we have to call out our politicians. We have to call out the people who take money from these defense contractors and say, Are you're never gonna support being against the war when, you know, Raytheon 
or Boeing is making money in your district. You know, and like that's the stuff that gets people to think more and gets people to actually pay attention. So I am hoping that you know we have to find those really effective ways to move forward and to help everybody be a part of the conversation. Okay, can I add something? Sure, go ahead, man. I think I think that's the trick. That's the trick, you know. Um, you know, with with uh, uh, with what you said about the politicians is the fundamental thing is how do we get them to fear us? You know, um, because I don't feel they fear us. I don't feel they even respect us. Or they don't care about us. You know, um, you know, they just you know seek us seek seek out for us doing elections and that's it. You know, uh, we're only good for for a vote and that's it. But the, the thing is, how to get them to fear us, you know? Um, how to get them to fear us, uh, that's the key word, key, um, you know, the key perspective. Also, when it comes to organizing, right? Um, I feel that a lot of people just don't know how, you know, they don't know the, the first step, you know? Um, so just saying organize, you know, you know, uh, people just need to know how, how to organize. A lot of people, you know, doesn't have that direction, you know? know whether how to start you know and and i speak like i said when i speak to a lot of people they just don't know um the, pe the people that join about face you know the new applicants they just don't know where to start they just don't know what to do you know so yeah <clears throat> all right henry bring down the house brother so some time ago Danny and I were talking about <clears throat> how he and I served in different armies that experience within serving in the military varies so widely. How can you understand what the ordinary behavior of the whole is, <clears throat> if not by assembling the parts to see more of the picture? Uh, Greg, you mentioned earlier that only 25% of the mobilized force to Vietnam actually experienced combat. Um, and th this picture we're trying to assemble, if we think of a, a, a puzzle box, you know, we see the picture on the outside, but, but do we know, do we verify that when those pieces are assembled that they're going to match the picture? It's only through that learned, learned experience that we get outside of that standard box. This is the difference showing the huge knowledge and experience gap between the recruiting pamphlet and the lived experience of the veteran. Um, we have to find ways to expand this tent to, to include the experiences of veterans whose time in the military doesn't match our own and whose politics uh, don't match our own. Um, we have to understand that, you know, veterans are, we're, we're not a monolith. We come in all shapes and sizes. And if we're to understand what it means to be a soldier of color or a female soldier or to understand what it meant to be a soldier even in other eras like we've been talking about today we have to go to the source american veterans hold their their perceived service so very closely with their own identity that more often than not criticizing military service to them means criticizing veterans and that's not what we're intending to do the veterans who participated in Winter Soldier, they chose to disregard that notion and powerfully say, this was wrong to us, and we hope it was wrong to you too. Lastly, we have to understand that commemorating something doesn't ensure that people will 
actively and honestly commemorate it. You know, commemoration is not analysis. Commemoration is not advocacy. We have Veterans Day and Memorial Day and the 4th of July, but each day means something different to every American citizen and to every veteran. And Americans have their beliefs bookended by, you know, the circles they lived in. Like uh, Danny said a little bit ago, you know, we, we, the event goes by Memorial Day or whatever. And, and as a citizen, we put our pen in it and say, we did our job. We felt sad or reflective at the appropriate moment. And now our calendar and hence our mindset can move on. Any war veterans have to find ways to disrupt that, to disrupt the narratives of war. And sometimes that includes being the targets for other citizens or other veterans who honestly may end up seeing us as traitors. And we have to understand that we're trying to rise to a better level of patriotism, a, a much more reflective one. I think those are uh, great closeout comments. And again, I just want to thank uh, Vince, Giovanni, and Greg for uh, still being on, as well as uh, Andrew Basevich for having been on earlier. Uh, really great in conversation. And uh, we'll get Larry and, and Chris on for something else. I'm sure we'll be talking about these issues for a long time. And uh, so thanks to everybody and uh, to listeners now and then people restreaming, which is where most of our, you know, views get, you know, kind of seen, you know, thanks for tuning in and uh, this has been awesome and we'll do it again soon. Thanks guys. Take care. We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill and also at facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Patreon, Spotify. You name it, almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. And if you're not into giving us a monthly payment, think about giving us a couple bucks on PayPal. The link is in the show notes. Skepticism is one's best armor. Never forget it. We'll see you next time. And listen to my song. I hope you'll pay attention. I will not be.